we are doing a sermon series right now called Distinct, uh, Lessons on Living Faithfully. And over the last several weeks, four weeks, we have talked about a lot of lessons on how to live faithfully. And, and I don't think that I, I have been, as I was thinking back on the last four weeks, specific in, enough on, on really saying, hey, this is, this is a lesson on, on how to live a faithful life. And so I just want to take a moment to recap kind of the five lessons. Uh, first of all, recognizing the love of God from Malachi 1, 1 through 5. Second of all, Doing things that cost us something for the sake of God. We talked about sacrifice and how important it is to do something that actually costs us something. It's easy to say like, well, I'm going to go to church so that we feel good. But until it really costs us something, uh, we are not actually worshiping God. Uh, Another one would be setting our hearts towards glorifying God. And so we saw in Malachi that if we're going to be faithful to God, then we must put it in ourselves to say, here's what my life is about. My life is about making God look good. And then we saw that we need to be in awe of God. That is to say, we need to look at the God of the universe and say, wow, I respect you, you're big, you're scary, you're awesome, you're greater than anything on the earth. And so I have this this healthy respect and fear of you. And then we saw that we must fulfill our God-given responsibilities in our relationships to other people. We saw that last week and we specifically talked about how in marriage... We need to fulfill the promises that we've made if we're going to glorify God. And about how if we're not married, uh, we shouldn't marry non-Christians because that is something that God has made explicitly clear throughout Scripture. And so uh, so we saw the, those five things so far. That That is what a faithful life looks like. And, and today we examine a passage of Scripture that doesn't actually give us a lesson. Instead, what it does is it offers us a reason for why we ought to live a faithful life. I mean, if you're if you're here and, and you're kind of on the fence about God and, and you're thinking, well, that all sounds great. I mean, I can stand in awe of God and I, I could, you know, do something for God that costs me something. But why? I mean, why should I do that? I, I, I like my life the way it is. And, and I think that, that if that's you, then this passage answers that question and and what it comes down to is kind of this argument that 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 happens and it's been happening forever and ever and ever and that is this argument an argument between relative morality and and universal morality and let me explain a relative morality says that morality is different for everybody different cultures perhaps different people perhaps and so you hear it stated in this way today what's what's right for you may not be right for me and what's wrong for you may not be wrong for me and, and that that's kind of a prevailing idea in our culture today. And then on the other side of that, somewhere where Christians ought to stand, is that we say there is a morality that applies to every single person on the planet. And as Christians, we say that morality is found in God and the character of God and his written word in the Bible. But there's people who believe in a universal morality that aren't Christians as well. And, and here's the thing. C.S. Lewis uses the idea of morality in order to prove the existence of God. And so in Mere Christianity, a great book, if you've never read it, one of the key books for all of Christianity, pick it up and read it. He explains why we can see a universal morality in the world and uses it for the existence of God. Let me give you just kind of his line of thinking. I still think you should read the book, but it goes like this. We intrinsically understand that there is a universal morality because... When somebody does something we don't like, we say something like, you have wronged me. 
Like if somebody cuts in front of you in line, you say, that isn't right. Right? Or somebody punches you in the face when you haven't done anything. You intrinsically say, it wasn't good for you to do that. And so somewhere deep inside of our souls, we kind of understand that there is a criteria for right and wrong. Uh, here's the other thing. When people don't understand that, we call them psychos. I, I, that's the truth. I mean, we look at people who don't say that there's a right and wrong and they act like there's not. They do whatever they want. And we think you're a psychopath, even when they might see a right and wrong, but yet they don't live up to the kind of universal standard code of ethics. Let me give you an example of this. I watched kind of a a documentary, fake, kind of a mockumentary, but not funny, uh, about the Green River Killer. Uh, and I've just watched parts of it. Uh, but the Green River Killer, if you don't know him, he killed people up and down I-5, uh, Washington and Oregon. And, and at the very end of the movie, the detective on the case, who pretty much made it his life, I mean, to find this guy and figure out who it was so that the, the family members could know who did it. At the very end of it is he's walking out after interviewing the guy who he has spent a decade, more than a decade, trying to capture. He, he, he's, he asks him this question. He says, you know, on a scale of one to five, how, how bad would you rate yourself? The guy kind of thinks, the Green River Killer, and he says, a three. He said, that's funny. The detective said, that's funny. And the killer said, why? And he said, because I was thinking the same thing about myself. And we intrinsically kind of go, Green River Killer worse. I mean, he killed 20-something women. That's worse, right? And so we recognize that there is some type of morality, and that guy didn't get it. He didn't live up to the same expectation. And we go, that's a psychopath who, who should spend the rest of his life in prison at least. And, and then the other thing that C.S. Lewis says, is that relative morality makes all wrongdoing a matter of opinion. And, and, and for him, who's writing mere Christianity not, not that far away from when the Nazis had their reign in Germany, he looks at the Nazis and says, there is no way, if you hold to a relative morality, to say that what the Nazis did was wrong. Because it's relative. It may have been right for them. And so he looks and says, we all kind of get it, right? I mean, the Nazis did evil things. But with the relative morality, there's no way that anybody can call the Nazis evil. And so he says, you must believe in a universal morality. And then he goes on in his book to say, if you believe in that, which you should, then you must believe in the existence of God. And so here, this morning, I want to take the opposite approach of C.S. Lewis. And I want to ask this question, because this is the question in our passage of Scripture today, Malachi 2, 17 through 3, 1 through 5. This is the, kind of the idea here. What if you start with God? Can you go back and see that God actually believes in a universal morality? Sure, he's written some things down in Scripture, but sometimes, and this is what we'll see is the kind of question that drives it, sometimes it seems that life isn't fair and that God is up there in heaven and he's looking down at the people who do evil stuff and he's not doing his job by punishing them and he's looking down at the people who do, do good stuff and it seems like he is punishing them. And sometimes... If you start with the belief in existence of God, which 95% of people in our country do, it still seems that the question must be asked. Is there really a universal standard that God holds us to? Because sometimes things don't seem fair. Here's their question in, in Malachi 2.17. This is what it says. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him? 
you ask, by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? Here it is, wrapped up in their question, is the idea that God doesn't seem to be responding fairly to what people are doing wrong. Now think about it from their perspective. Just put yourself in these people's shoes. They are in captivity to a nation that worships a bunch of false gods. Okay? I mean, these people blatantly disregard Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and they build these idols and they worship them. And yet, they're rich, and they're powerful, and they're reigning over the Jewish people. And the Jewish people are going, wait a minute. God is causing us to be in captivity because we are kind of not worshiping him correctly. And God, already in this book, is very angry with us because we're not sacrificing the right animals. These people are sacrificing to things that aren't even real gods. That doesn't seem fair. I mean, really, you're letting them rule over us because we aren't sacrificing correctly, but they're sacrificing to different gods altogether, and they have all the power and all the money, and they seem healthy and happy. That doesn't seem right. And so wrapped up in their question is, a, is this question. Does God really care about how we live our lives? Does God really care about things like sin? Does he care for these people that we follow the Ten Commandments, that we sacrifice correctly, if it seems that the blessings are going to the people who don't care about God at all? This is a question our society has, right? I mean, this is a question that probably you have, and it comes out like this. This is kind of the way we say it. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? We think about September 11th, and we think about how those towers were hit, and in those towers were about 3,500 people, and many of those people were godly individuals who probably loved their families tremendously, and they were going to work, they were hardworking, they were just doing their jobs. Why would God allow them to die? Or how about these firefighters that just died in New Mexico? I mean, these guys are willing to jump into fires, quite literally, in order to save the lives of people and to save people's houses, and yet they die in a fire. How does God allow for that to happen when they seem like such good people? Or we word it like this, how can God send people to hell that seems so nice and so friendly? Isn't that kind of a, a thing like that people wonder? I mean, like, they look at somebody who calls themselves a Christian, they're like, that that person's not very nice, not very friendly. They seem, I don't really like them. But yet, that person's saying that this guy over here who's a great family man and is a great worker that works with me is going to hell. How can that possibly be? Or it sounds like this. Does God really care about the things that the Bible declares sin? Doesn't he just want people to be happy? If not, why is he mean? I mean, we, we see this a lot, like right? I mean, it's like, well, if people just commit this sin, then their lives will be happier. Like, for example, if they just get divorced, then everything's going to be better for them. And so why would God strictly say that he doesn't want people to get divorced in our passage of Scripture last week? I mean, why would that be a thing when that seems like it makes people miserable? And some people here have parents, and, and maybe you're in a marriage like that, and you're thinking, man, I can't believe that this unfair, unjust God wants me to stay in this marriage or wants my parents or whoever it might be to stay in this marriage when it seems so horrible for them. Is God fair? Is God just? Does he really have this universal morality shouldn't he just say yeah do whatever you want whatever makes you happy god says that these questions weary him it's a word for physical exhaustion and and 
God doesn't get physically exhausted, but the point is well made. Uh, I, we, some of us, many of us played three softball games on, on Thursday, and, and I, I knew exactly what this passage meant by the end of it. It's just like, i got to quit now. And that's about how God feels with these people right here. He's like, I just want to give up on you because of these words. But we want to know the answer too, right? I mean, don't we? And, and here's here's God's answer. Not what you would expect but pretty important for us in understanding what God thinks about sin and morality and goodness. Here's what he says in three one: I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now it's a difficult passage to understand but uh, when you just read it in its own context. But when you look at it at the, in, within the context of Scripture, it's pretty easy to see that this is referring to two people. And it's two people that we find in the New Testament. The first, the preparing messenger, is John the Baptist. Malachi 4, 5 says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Isaiah 43 says, A voice of one calling out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It seems to be referring to some type of Isaiah-like figure. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. Who will come again someday. And then John 1.23 says this. John replied, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. And so... Malachi is predicting here, this is the first part of the answer to God's question, a man who will come to prepare the way for somebody else. Okay, And that was John the Baptist in the New Testament. Now the second person, it kind of looks like two people, says the Lord of the Covenant, says the messenger again, but really it's one person. This is how we know it because it is a reference to Jesus. Here's how we know that, a couple reasons. First of all, it says the Lord. The Lord is not often used of people in the Bible that are not godly figures or or kingly figures. And John the Baptist was neither of those, and we don't have another representation of this person. And so the Lord seems to refer to, to God himself. Also notice, if you were to look right there at verse 1, it says, Someday I will come. This is God talking. Someday I will come. There will be a messenger who will prepare the way for me. And then it says, the Lord of the covenant will come. And so God switches from the first person to the second person and says, look, I am coming. And and so we know that this must be a godly-like figure. Now, the the other thing that we see here is that even if you take away a, a belief in the Trinity and you read this on its own, it seems like it's talking about somebody who is both divine in nature and human in nature and and for the people who are reading back then i feel sorry for them this is like who i don't have a clue what you're talking about seems like you're talking about god but it also seems like you're talking about a person but when we flip to the new testament we find an answer for this philippians 2 5 through 8 says this in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as christ jesus who being in very nature god did not consider equality with god something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross and so we see in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, that Jesus is this God-man figure. He was God in human form. 
And you look back at the book of Malachi and you say, oh, that makes sense now. I mean, for the first readers, it would have been like, how can that be? How can God come and a messenger and what does that mean? But when you look at the New Testament, it is quite clear that the answer is Jesus. Hebrews 7.22 talks about this new covenant. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant, the Lord of the covenant, a new covenant. And then in Hebrews 9.15, for this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. You see what it's saying here? It's saying that Jesus is the Lord of the covenant. He, he became the Lord of the covenant by dying on a cross so that we didn't just fall into the old covenant where we had to follow a bunch of rules in order to have a good relationship with God. But now we are able to come to Jesus, find forgiveness for sins, and have a relationship with the God of the universe through him. Second Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And, and here's the deal. This is the answer. God seems unfair. What's wrong with that? God doesn't seem like he has a standard for everybody. The answer is, has always been, Jesus. Say, well, that's not a very good answer. I mean, I want to like, I want something better than that. Well, let, let's look at verse 2 because it really explains why Jesus is the answer to the question of morality. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Here's three thoughts on this. Perhaps none of the, uh, the, the question, who can endure the day of his coming, right? And, and if this is Jesus, it seems like people actually endured the day of his coming. And so uh, what, what does that mean? Well, here's my three thoughts. I don't have an answer, but I have three thoughts. First of all, uh, it, it could be that none of the people he was talking to actually could have endured the coming of Jesus. Because when you look at the life of Jesus, not many people actually were able to, to handle him. Most people rejected him. They ran away from him. They ended up killing him because they couldn't handle it. And so perhaps when Malachi writes, the nation is so bad that not many people actually could have had a relationship with Jesus, could have become his disciples. That leads to number two, Jesus was not truly embraced by very many people while he was on earth. I mean, we think like Jesus had like millions of followers when he walked the planet. Uh, but, but really, uh, I mean, we see like a bunch of people who kind of follow him around and like to hear from him. But he had like 70-ish real life followers who devoted their lives to him. That's not that many. I mean, like when you're, when you're feeding like 15,000 people miraculously, but really you have 72 people who really deeply care about you. That's not that many who are enduring your coming. And then this could have undertones of Jesus' second coming. Ah, and so there is that too. I want to skip verses 3 and 4 for a second. Let me read to you verse 5 because it's important for understanding what's happening. So I will come to you and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Now here's what you see. First of all, you see this idea of the, the purifying, the launderer's soap, the refiner's fire. And let me just give you a picture of, of what that idea is here. It's that Jesus comes in order to remove the sin from our lives. 
It's pretty clear when you look at places in the New Testament that this is one of the reasons that Jesus came, in order that we might be saved for our sins. The reason Jesus came and died is so that he could take the punishment of your sins. Listen to Romans 5, 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 10.13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Jesus came. In order to remove sin from our lives. Now this is referred to as the refiner's fire and the launderer's soap. And uh, the refiner's fire is the easiest to illustrate. The soap is just soap. I mean it means to clean like you would get stuff out of your laundry. That's what it is. Uh, But the refiner's fire, the idea is the purification of gold or silver. And, and the purification of gold and silver is interesting, and, and here's a story that reflects that. There's a women's Bible study going on, and this is what we read. They're talking about this passage in the refiner's fire. This, ver- this verse puzzled the women, and they wondered what this statement meant about the character and nature of God. One of the women offered to find out about the process of refining silver and get back to the group at their next Bible study. That week, this woman called up a silversmith and made an appointment to watch him at work. She didn't mention anything about the reason for her interest in silver beyond her curiosity about the process of refining it. As she watched the silversmith, he held a piece of silver over the fire and let it heat up. He explained that in refining silver, one needed to hold the silver in the middle of the fire where the flames were hottest to burn away all the impurities. The woman thought about God holding us in such a hot spot. Then she thought again about the verse, that he sits as a refiner and purifier of silver. She asked the silversmith if it was true that he had to sit there in front of the fire the whole time the silver was being refined. The man answered yes. He not only had to sit there holding the silver, but he had to keep his eyes on the silver the entire time it was in the fire. If the silver was left even for a moment too long in the flames, it would be destroyed. The woman was silent for a moment, then asked the silversmith, How do you know when the silver is fully refined? He smiled at her and answered, Oh, that's easy, when I see my image in it. And so one of the reasons... That Jesus came is to make us more like God. To make us more like himself in purity and holiness. Now the other aspect of this, and and the one that that you can see there, uh, is that God seems to also be saying that in the coming of Jesus, we find punishment. The idea is that, that Jesus comes in order to draw a line in the sand, and say, you got to get on one side, Jesus' side or the other side. And if you're not on Jesus' side, then you're represented by these people who are perjurers and defrauders and, and people who aren't taking care of widows and orphans and things like that. You're on that side. And Jesus came in order to bring punishment. This is something that is so important for us to understand. We need to understand this about Jesus because I don't think we do. Jesus came, yes, to save us from our sins, but Jesus also came to show us what sin really was and how bad it was to God. 
You see, in his coming, he answers the question of morality by saying quite clearly God holds to a universal morality. So much so that when he looks down on people's sins, he can't say, oh, never mind, not a big deal. But instead, he had to send his son, his own son, to come and die so that people could be saved from that sin. But if they choose not to be saved from that sin, then punishment is all that is left. You see, fire can be both good and bad, right? Now, if it's a refining fire, it's good. It's making silver better. It's making gold better. We use fire for good things all the time, right? And, and, and what God is saying is, look, you can be somebody who's refined by my fire. You can be somebody who is being made more like me through the fire if you get on the side of Jesus. But some fires are bad. Wildfires are bad. They kill people. We know that. House fires are bad. They destroy things. And so on the other side of it, in the person of Jesus, we see that if we're not on his side, then the fire is going to one day consume us. It's going to destroy us. See, in Jesus, you have an answer to, to morality because it gives you a choice. It says, I can have my sins forgiven or someday I can be burned up because of my sins mentioned this verse already, but at the, at the end of this book, the way that it describes the ending when Jesus comes again is this. It says that some people will be burned up, people who have not given their lives to God. And they will sit as ashes on the ground. And people who have given their lives to Jesus will frolic about on top of those ashes. You think, wow, that's brutal. That's vicious. That seems unfair. But because of Jesus, it's absolutely fair because every person has now had the right, the opportunity to give their lives to him and have their sins forgiven and someday not be consumed by the fire, but instead frolic around as we shine in the ray of light that is Jesus as it describes in Malachi 4. You see, in Jesus, we find the answer to the question of morality because in Jesus, we have an opportunity to be saved from our sin or we can reject that and be burned up because of that sin. He leaves no doubt. I mean, he leaves no doubt. He, he says, you know, it's not about whether the Persians for them or whether the rich guy that lives down the street who doesn't seem nice at all is successful now. Because that person, just like you, has an opportunity. And that opportunity is Jesus. You, you look around and you go, well, it just doesn't seem fair that that good guy over there is going to go to hell while this, this person over here who doesn't seem that nice is, is going to get into heaven. Well, it is fair because in Jesus, every person, good guy or this guy, has an opportunity to accept the gift of salvation and become a person who will be refined by the fire and not burned up by the fire. You say, well, it just doesn't seem okay that, that God... That God doesn't want people to be happy. That, that he's not okay with these sins when they seem like they make people happy, happier than, than they already were. But, but there's an answer for that. Jesus came so that we could have eternal happiness. And so a person that says, well, I have to sin to be happier, has the opportunity to accept Christ and have eternal happiness, not temporary happiness. You see, in Jesus, you find a strict morality. A lot of people want to look at Jesus and go, well, he makes it so I can do whatever I want. No, he makes it so that you should know 
that sin is real and God absolutely hates it so much so that he had to give his only son to die for it so that we have an opportunity to either accept the gift or reject the gift. We can be on the side of sin or we can be on the side of forgiveness. That is now up to us in the person of Jesus. Man, I'll tell you this. If, if you're not a Christian, then you really do. You need to understand that, that, that God has given you that opportunity and that, that, that right now God is being totally fair. He's going to let you do what you want to do. But he is saying, hey, if someday you want to get into heaven and if you want the fire to make you better and not end you, then you need to be a person who gives your life to me. Now, here's the other part. If, if you are a Christian person, God has something to say to you in this because you're already on the right side. God says, then the sacrifices will be acceptable to me once again. You see, in Jesus, we find this divide. You either accept him, you be refined, or you reject him and you get burned up someday. But that's not it. It's not like, hey, I'm in. Because the refining process is continual, and God always wants us to get better. He wants us to grow. He wants us to become more like him. And the reason for that is because God wants to once again be worshipped correctly. I've already read this verse to you a couple of times, but it's important to read again. Uh, maybe I don't want to read it. There it is, Revelation 1, 5, and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. We are now the priests if we have given our lives to Jesus. And Jesus is refining us on a daily basis through the difficult things we face in life, through his word, through his presence in our life. And he is saying, look, I have done this in order that you can bring me sacrifices. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, another important important verse two verses that we've read a couple of times therefore i urge you brothers and sisters in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god this is your true and proper worship do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what god's will is his good pleasing and perfect will Philippians 2.17, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul says, my life is the sacrifice. And what I think that God is saying to us is that, look, I came and died on a cross to make a separation and say, look, I believe in a universal morality. I'm God. You need to get on a side. And once you're on my side, it is your job to offer all of your life to me because that's why I came. So that I could be worshipped fully once again on this planet. And so if you're already a Christian and you're already on that side, then you shouldn't be the jerk that this person over here didn't like before. You should be a person that is offering yourself as a sacrifice to God. Because Jesus didn't just save you so that you could get into heaven. Jesus saved you so that he could refine you and, and have sacrifice that it was pleasing to him again. Now, let me give you some specific ways because my whole life is kind of vague. Hopefully, you're giving every part of yourself to God and you're pouring yourself out like a drink offering. But there's a couple of different types of offerings that are specifically stated in the New Testament. And we already talked a couple weeks ago, and if you didn't listen to that sermon, I'd say go back, but about different types of sacrifices. But now, let me just give you a couple of different types of offerings that are described in the New Testament because... 
We don't give offerings of animals anymore. Don't do that. Uh, I'll have a problem with you. Acts 10.4. This is what it says. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. This guy named Cornelius, who doesn't even know about Jesus yet, but believes in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is praying and offering gifts Money, we can guess, to the poor. And an angel appears to him and says, this is an offering that has made its way to God. And so we see two ways. Pretty simple, straightforward ways. We can give money to support people, support the poor specifically in this passage. And we can pray if we want to offer offerings to God that are pleasing to him. Pretty simple things, right? I mean, you can take a homeless guy out to lunch, you can say a prayer, and God will, will like it. Philippians 4.18, I have received full payment and even more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. See that? This is just giving money to ministry. There's a group of people in Philippi and they're offering money to God's ministry in order to support what's taking place and make sure that other brothers and sisters have what they need. And so a way that you can make an offering for God is by giving your money to God's ministry. We think that if you're a part of this church, and we'll talk more about this next week, uh, but we think that, that you should be giving money to the church if you're really a part of this. We think that's something that God wants from you. And, and here we see that, that that's not just about getting things done. That's about offering something to God that is pleasing to him, something that he likes. And then in 1 Peter 2, 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to, a, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so there is something in the spiritual realm. It could be a song of praise. It could be a, a word of encouragement to others. It could be a kindness when you're dealing with difficult people. It can be a myriad of things. But God is saying to us that, that we can offer in the spiritual realm sacrifices to him. It's not money, but it's something that's intangible. But we know that we are giving of ourselves for the glory of God. And so this is it. Let me just, let me just iterate quite clearly. The question of morality is solved in Jesus. It's universal. God has a standard, and we know that because Jesus came and said, look, my standard is so strong that I have to die on a cross for you in order to save you from the wrongdoings. There's no need for Jesus if it's a relative morality, right? But Jesus says, look, I died for your wrongdoings so that you can either be on my side and have eternal life or you can be burned by the fire in a very bad way. And if you get on the side of Jesus, the reason that you should live your life, is to bring God offerings that are acceptable to him. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that we would, that we would, first of all, everybody God here would know you and, and, and understand that they need you, God. And, and I, I believe, God, that there's people listening who have never really considered, thought about, focused on the fact that they are sinners who are in need of a savior and they live their lives maybe not actually expressing this idea of a relative uh, morality but but somewhere inside of them they think well i'm a pretty good person i don't know what god says about it but i'm a pretty good person and i, I just 
asked for that person right now, that they would they would just be confronted by their sins through your Holy Spirit. And, and they, God, would be drawn to you this morning so that they can get on the side where, where fire doesn't burn up, but fire refines and changes and grows us. And Lord, for those of us that, that have already accepted your gift, who know you as our Savior, who love you, I do pray, God, that more and more we would offer ourselves to you. I pray that we'd offer all of our lives to you. But God, even this week, if we could just start, Lord, by, by offering just something to you. I mean, maybe it's money that goes towards feeding a homeless person. Maybe it's money towards God's ministry, this church or another. Maybe it's got us just really passionately praying for somebody in our church that's out of our church, that should be in our church, that doesn't know you as their Savior. Maybe, God, it's us saying, I'm just going to do something that spiritually I think is pleasing to God. It's a prayer. It's a song. It's just a frame of mind. I pray, God, that we would be people who offer you something because that is part of the reason that you came. Let us not be people who, who look at the cross like they were in the book of Malachi, the, the first readers, and say, well, Jesus saved me. There's no reason to live for God anymore. But let us be people who say, Jesus saved me. I'm going to make my life an offering. I will pour myself out like a drink offering for the glory of the God who saves. We love you, Jesus. Those of us who know you in this room love you. And, and Lord, we thank you that because of what you did on the cross, what you did for us, Jesus. We look forward to glory and not destruction. Pray these things in your name. Amen.